At this time, I invite you to turn in your pew Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. You'll find that on page 1,758 in your pew Bible. Again, Romans chapter 9, beginning at verse 1, and we will continue through verse 18. Romans chapter 9, hear now the word of the Lord. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the, is the adoption of sons, theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised, amen. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as, is, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Before we contemplate this, let us pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, as we have read your word, please engage our minds, mold our hearts. May we hear what you would have us hear. May you be with your servant, your mouthpiece, that he may speak what you would have him speak, that your people would learn what, they would, what you would have them learn, that we may serve in the way that you would have us serve. This we ask in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Romans chapter 9. Last time I was here, before an actual crowd, was actually the last Sunday 
of 2019. If you remember what I preached on then, I kind of tongue-in-cheek have to say it was 2020 vision. Boy, don't we have 2020 vision now. But I thought for the last Sunday of 2020, for all the tumultuousness that we've had, for all the things that have gone in our lives that have never gone according to plan, wouldn't it be great to talk about God's plan? Wouldn't it be great to talk about election, how God calls his people? And so as we read Romans chapter 9 this morning, it's quite clear well, it's about God choosing his people in the way he wants to choose them. But how does he choose them? He chooses them of his own volition, of himself. And he does so according to his plan, not according to ours. And so this morning we see that God elects his people from before their time, but not in spite of their time. You'll see what I mean as I go through this morning. We're going to look at this in three points. Paul's pain, God's promise, and then God's justice in choosing his people. Paul's pain, God's promise, and God's justice in choosing his people. First, Paul's pain. You know, it's quite interesting to start a passage here in verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. And what is that truth that Paul speaks of? I wish myself accursed for the sake of my people. My biological brothers and sisters, those of my own race, as he says in verse 3. You know, that's interesting, isn't it? You start off a passage about election by saying you wish yourself accursed for those who aren't elected? What are you talking about, Paul? You just went through, through chapter 8, one of the greatest chapters in all of Scripture, about how there's no condemnation in Christ, we're more than conquerors, the, the glorious things that, have in, that we have in Christ by being elect, by being those that have been called according to the purpose. As I read this morning for our call to worship. Paul, why the shift? Why the switch? You're in the middle of this beautiful diatribe. Why are you talking about those who are not? Paul wishes himself cut off and accursed for the sake of his own people, even as Christ himself was cut off for his own people, for the sake of humanity. As I studied this passage, more and more things kept popping into my mind. You remember even Christ himself had this problem? Christ himself in Luke 13 says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you were not willing. 
Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see the same disposition, the same mindset, the same thing that Paul experiences here, Christ himself experienced. Paul doesn't say, well, you know, nuts on all those people. I have a new family now. He doesn't say, well, you know, after all, we need to transplant ourselves from this family that we were born into, and now we are part of the family of Christ. It's easy for us to do that, though, isn't it? We hear stories about people who are so brave that their family cuts them off because they are part of the name of Christ now. We hear of Muslim, former Muslim brothers and sisters who come to Christ and their families say, you're a Christian now? How dare you? I'm not only going to disown you, I'm going to try and kill you. We go, wow, what a story for the name of Christ. The sacrifices that they would have had to give. And yet, we also hear of people like Nabil Koresh, who is a Muslim, who grew up a Muslim, who attended a Muslim high school and grammar school, who came to the United States for college, and here's this thing called Christ, and is converted into a Christian. And he lives the name of Christ, and he wants to hear the name of Christ, and he preaches the name of Christ, and his family wants nothing to do with him, and yet what does he say? In his book, actually in an interview from his book, he says to the interviewer, and yet it pains me every day that my family can't be here with me on this side of glory because they are lost. And I pray for them every day because I hope that the grace of Christ would be with us. Sorry, would be with them. Paul here speaks of the great sorrow in his heart because he sees all those who obstinately refuse all the glorious things that he just talked about in chapter 8. That those who are predestined and called and justified and glorified those who are more than conquerors, those who have the assurance that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor principalities nor the present or the future nor height nor depth can separate us from the love of God. That whole thing that Paul just talked about in chapter 8. And Paul goes, I wish myself accursed so that my people could be there. One of the great problems of 2020 was race relations. 
One of the great things that we heard time and time and time again were words, buzzwords about black and white, people of color and white privilege, this, that, and the other thing about division. <coughs> Sorry about that. <coughs> And yet, Paul here says, don't you see? The greatest thing of all is to be part of Christ. The greatest thing of all is to be here with the Holy Spirit. The greatest thing of all is to be part of Christ. But at the same time, it pains me time and time and time again whenever I go into a synagogue, whenever I see another Jewish family, whenever I see a former co-worker, and they have no, no inkling, no desire, no want to be part of the family of God. You see, Paul doesn't completely split himself off from being part of the people of God, but he also doesn't give them a free pass either. Verse 4 through verse 5, verses 4 and 5, he says, theirs is the adoption of sons, there's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises, the patriarchs, and even Christ himself is traced through them. Don't you see all of the advantages that they possibly have, and yet there is no excuse for their blindness? One of the great things I love about the Christmas season, I didn't get to do this here, and that was singing the Messiah. And yet, what do we hear? Who is Christ? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That comes from Isaiah. The words of Isaiah ringing through hundreds of years to see finally Christ comes to be born of a virgin, born under the law. And all those things from the temple that were pointing time and time and time again, all of the sacrifices, all of the festivals, everything from the temple worship, what it was supposed to signify, going into the holiest of places, and yet everything was supposed to be this foreshadowing of Christ. And yet these people would rather live in blindness. Verse 6 says, it's not though as if God's word had failed. You see, God's promise here is not a biological promise. Remember when Christ was approached by the Pharisees and he says, and the, the Pharisees say, well, we are sons of Abraham. He goes, oh, God can raise up sons of Abraham from these stones. Who cares? 
See, the promise of God is not limited by the actions of men. However, God also uses the actions of men to accomplish his purpose. And new divisions must necessarily occur. Verses 6 and 7, it's not as though God's word had failed for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Well, Paul, that's a really interesting place to put that quote. Why put that quote there? What do you mean? Wasn't, wasn't Isaac a child of Abraham? What are you talking about? Who is the other son of Abraham? We always think of Isaac, Isaac and then Jacob, right? Jacob was the son of Isaac. But we forget, it's so easy for us to forget, that actually the firstborn son of Abraham was Ishmael. Through an Egyptian slave. And why was Ishmael born? Because Sarah said, you know that promise that was given? (laughs) You're 100 years old, I'm 90, I ain't having kids. What in the world are you talking about? Maybe it's through some other means. So why don't you take my... Egyptian slave here, and she can give you a son in my place. And God says, Abram, here we go again. God's word does not fail. As much as we strive and try and push things, And, well, God, you said this. You have these promises for me. You just gave this whole thing in Romans 8 about what I'm supposed to be in Christ. So where are my blessings? Where's my job? Where's my car? Where's my house? Where's the security I'm supposed to feel? God, you made all these promises. How come I don't see them? Well, you know, what if I start, what if I take this job? Yeah, I know I, know I got to work on Sundays, but if I take this job, I can afford the car. If, if I take a second job, that'll, you know, okay, fine, so it, it makes me work really late on Saturday nights. And I'm going to be absolutely exhausted, and I'm probably not going to get up in time for church. But, you know, I mean, I can always go to church on Sunday nights. But I'll finally be able to, you know, do more than just live paycheck to paycheck. So often we justify, bit by bit, piece by piece, little by little, and claim it's part of God's promise. And yet, if we would just trust in God's promise and wait on his timing, it is through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned. Don't you see? 
Abraham. It's not through Ishmael. It's not through your choice. It's not through your timing. It's not through what you want, how my work, my will to work. It's how my will is going to work through you. But that also means that there's a division that occurs. It is through Isaac that we trace our spiritual lineage. It is not through Ishmael. This is one of the great dividing lines that we have. If you ask a Muslim, if you ask someone from Islam, who is the child of promise? The child of promise for a Muslim is Ishmael. The one who is proclaimed to be the wild donkey of a man who would kick against the goads. But here, according to the Holy Spirit, Paul writes and says, quoting in Genesis 21, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated at the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac, yet before the twins were born, or had anything good or bad in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. You see, God's promise here is not thwarted by these divisions either. It's also not thwarted by evil deeds. It's also not thwarted by the works of man. Those done by his people. Or those done by vessels of wrath. See, God's decision is outside of time. Which destroys any argument of a libertarian free will. There are many people that will argue... That, well, you know, God chose us. Yes, he chose us from before the beginning of the world, just like it says in the Bible. But that's because he knew what we were going to do. But what does it say in our passage here? Verse 12, not by works, but by him who calls. You see, the promise is not based on the basis of lineage, but neither was it based on merit. Or good works. You see, that is the huge question here. Question that people don't like to talk about, but the question that we need to talk about. How does God come to his decision? When God chooses, how does he do so? Well, he chooses them because he chooses them. If it were anything more than that, we have just made God subservient to something else. Here's what I mean by this. You see, if God chooses according to our actions first, then he is subject to the actions that we have done or will do and therefore is subject to the time in which those things take place. 
So if he has no control over the actions that are done, therefore he has no control over us, and therefore he has no control. Period. Let me put it this way. If God, in his authority, says, I'm not going to touch anything. This is a very common argument that's made. I'm not going to control your lives. I'm not going to put my hands, as it were, into the pudding. And I'm going to allow you to do what you feel is best. Devoid of influence. And people will say, well, yeah, of course, because, you know, I chose oatmeal this morning instead of cereal. Well, I chose to drive a blue car instead of a green car. I chose to work this job instead of that job. I mean, there's no... Why would God do those things? You know, why, why would there be some supernatural decision in that? It's oatmeal, right? But you see, if there is something that is not innately controlled by God, there is something that is out of control. Chaos. And that chaos perpetuates more chaos. That lack of control now is outside of what God can do. Therefore, he's no longer almighty. He's no longer eternal. He's no longer omnipotent. He's no longer all-knowing. Because my decisions are now devoid of him. We have to place our trust in God because God is the one who controls all things. I want to take a little bit of an aside here because I had somebody ask me this question as I was working through this. And there is a very serious question here. In verse 13, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, if you'll pardon the rabbit trail for a little bit. But when people see this word hated, God hates things. God hates people. How can you have a God that hates people? I think this was well put, actually, in a commentary. You see the word hate here is poetically comparative, not absolute. You see, Rachel was loved by Jacob more than Leah was. Christians are to hate their parents and other family members and even their own life in comparison to their love for Christ. You see, the focus on these instances is on the not chosen, and so too here. God doesn't necessarily hate Esau in the way, in the way that there is an aggressive hatred, as we would think, but instead it's a not choosing. After all, well, how unloving for Jacob to hate Leah. How unloving for God to hate Esau. How unloving for Christians to hate their parents. And aren't they supposed to know that we are Christians by our love? You see, the focus here is supposed to be on the chosen. Jacob preferred Rachel. God chose Jacob. We are supposed to choose Christ. 
You see, the not chosen are not chosen according to the purpose, not according to hate. It's not that God hates them and therefore he doesn't choose them. It's that God does not choose them. And therefore, they are called hated or accursed. It is the fruit of the decision, not a precursor to the decision. I had someone actually ask me that question. Well, you know, in Romans 9, it says, you know, God hates Esau. I think we as Christians need to be careful with our language. It's very easy for us to throw around the word hate and throw around the word love and all the baggage that's accrued with all of that. But if we look at it as, what does it mean to be chosen of God? Well, take a look at all of Romans 8. But what happens if we're not chosen of God? See all the stuff from Romans 8? Yeah, put the opposite spin on it. It sounds pretty hated to me. Sorry about going down that rabbit hole, but I think we needed to at least deal with it a little bit. Verse 14 here. What shall then we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. How is God just in his choosing? How in the world is it just for God to choose some people and not choose other people? How is it, how is it good for God to love Jacob and hate Esau? For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I have compassion on whom I have compassion. That is a direct quote from Exodus 33. You'll see the little... D in your Bibles and down in the footnotes on the right-hand side, it says D15, Exodus 33, 19. That's because that's where the quote comes from. And again, going back to something I said previously, if God was subject to our actions, he would be subject to our decisions, making him subservient to us, not God. But that's impossible, isn't it? Isaiah 55 tells us, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways. And my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth, making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so it is that my word goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You see, the word of God is not devoid, neither is God unjust. When he gives his word, when he chooses those whom he will, he does so justly. It is a dangerous what if to state the otherwise. Verse 16 tells us, it is not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. If it were on anything else, it would undermine what God has told us. The gospel has always been based on God's mercy. Not of our own deserving, not of our actions, and not of anything else so that the glory is God's alone. 
Ephesians 2, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. You see, it must be by mercy alone. But then what do we do with verses 17 and 18 here, especially verse 17? Why in the world does Paul talk about Pharaoh? You see, there is a question that people, again, don't like to ask, but it's something that we have to talk about, and that is, what are vessels of wrath? What are the Esau's of this world, and how do we deal with it? 2020 has been a world and a year where everything has been enveloped in chaos. Everything gets shut down by a mysterious virus, by the government telling us this and telling us that. People will say one thing or another thing. People will say, will do one thing or another thing. And there's multiplicity on the spectrum. And yet, What has 2020 also taught us? 2020 has taught us that family is important. It's brought us closer together. For many of us, it's given us a desire to realize what would happen if we weren't allowed to be at church. And the desire to come back, to be with God's people. Yes, socially distanced, masked, and the like. But to have that desire after two months of not being able to meet together. It gives me appreciation to see faces in pews because talking to a webcam constantly is ridiculous. It's really weird, especially in the evening service when everything is dark and you've got nothing but a webcam in front of you. It gets a little lonely. But it gives you an appreciation for things that you never thought you would have an appreciation for. Sometimes it takes horrors and trials of life to finally figure out what God has been telling you from the beginning. Horrors and trials are the fire of refinement that God uses to produce the pure gold of faith, hope, and love. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Can you imagine Genesis without the Red Sea? Can you imagine the people of Israel without the 400 years of bondage? The things that have defined a people, the things that have defined an identity of who a person is, sometimes has to come through loss for there actually to be a word spoken, where it resoundingly says, God is God. You see, when God chooses here, 
He chooses not based on biology. He chooses not based on word or action or deed. But he chooses based on mercy, his own. And people will say, well, you know, you know, Pharaoh, you know, well, Pharaoh made the own decision, his own decision to harden his heart. Then there's others that will say, well, no, God hardened it first. And then Pharaoh decided to harden his heart, and so actually Pharaoh had no choice in the bit. Well, Pharaoh hardened his heart against God and refused to humble himself. It's main plain when you read it in Genesis. You see, God's hardening of him was a judicial act, abandoning him to his own stubbornness. Much as God's wrath against the ungodly is expressed by giving them over, Romans 1, to their own depravity. You see, the same con combination of human obstinacy and defined judgment in the hardening of the heart is seen even in God's word to Isaiah. He says, make the heart of this people calloused. And Jesus applies this to his own teaching ministry. And so we see it here as Paul follows that. You see, God does not give them what their heart does not already want. When Pharaoh hardens his heart, as exemplified in verse 17 here, Pharaoh's stubbornness was not something out of character for Pharaoh. Just like someone who runs away from the church and runs away from God, they're not doing something that is out of character for them. There is no one who says, I want to love God. I want to be here at church. I want to be part of the community. But God just won't let me. I've never heard that argument before. But if we ask the question, does God still use those people to accomplish his work, our answer resoundingly must be yes. Even those people who refuse to come to church, who refuse to be part of the, the promise, who refuse to be here, who refuse to be those who are called, yes, even they can be used by our almighty God to give blessings to his children. Because we know, we are assured that neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, when God calls his people from the nations, because it is his mercy that he does it by, he acts justly. That that promise is then worked out in our lives, not necessarily based upon what we see and what we do and how we feel, but by his proclamation and his guiding hand. 
but it also doesn't mean that we are cookie cutter out of our existence thrown into a new one. And sometimes those divisions leave scars and they hurt. But that also means that much more we should proclaim the gospel in our lives. That we should hold out the word of life. That we should say, Lord, I want to see those around me in church. I want to see my coworkers. I want to see my family. I want to see those who have been given the promise. They're the ones. They're the ones I want to see here, Lord. My heart breaks because I can't see it. Paul's pain should be our pain too. But we also know that even if they aren't, God is just in it. And his mercy endures forever. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, as we come before you, as we have heard your word, Lord, give us assurance. Give us peace. Give us an understanding. For Lord, we come before you. Hearing this, we want to preach the word. We want to be your people. And as such, Lord, give us the ability to be salt and light in a world that is so filled with fear and darkness. We ask that your name would be glorified, that you would be displayed as we go from this place. This we ask in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.